Now, I've watched many interviews on CNBC of founders and executives going on and explaining how their company works and why they're excited about the future of their company. But this interview with Keith Rabios here was different. This is one of the most amazing interviews I've ever seen on CNBC ever. And that is saying something because they've had some pretty incredible interviews before. But Keith Rabios is unlike most founders. The overall arrogance displayed in this interview is unparalleled. There is nothing like it. And as such, well, we have to react to it. So we're going to be going over this interview. We're going to be listening to Keith Rabios and him talk about Open Door. Now, after looking at that one, we have another interview that I want to dive into as well. And this one I consider to be one of the best interviews ever given on CNBC. So we're going to be going from the worst interview to the best interview. Jeremy gives an impassioned interview on why the Fed is making a massive mistake. And we're going to look at his arguments specifically of why he thinks the Fed is wrong. So we have a lot of news to get to, and we'll start off with a quick portfolio update. If you're new to this channel, We do things a little bit differently on the Joseph Carlson show. The biggest difference is I show my portfolio, my total invested assets, every single video, every episode I show my total portfolio, the gains or losses of it, and then I show what I'm investing in, my thoughts on the market, and everything that I'm doing. So you can transparently see where my money's going, what I'm investing in, and the returns on it. Now, over the past year, The returns look really bad. We're down, let's see, 13.8% over the past trailing year. The S&P 500 is down 17% over the same time period. None of it looks pretty right now. The market's going down and I run a long-only portfolio. So I have no short positions, no hedging going on. I'm a long-term investor. Even though this is difficult to go through this type of environment, In the end, I think it works to our benefit. I plan on buying over the next three years at a minimum. So when I'm doing these buys, I actually want the price to come down with these stocks. And the more the prices come down, the more eager I am to buy into these companies. For example, I just did a buy today. I buy into companies like Starbucks, Church & White. I bought $500 of SCHD, which is Schwab's dividend ETF. I think it's the best dividend ETF in existence. Then we have Pepsi and Nike. And these are companies that I consider to be very durable, resilient compounders. Companies that will continue to grow earnings in almost any environment. Every single company I buy is a dividend payer. And all of these dividends get collected in my account on a quarterly basis. The numbers are starting to add up as well. Some of these dividends are getting into the hundreds of dollars. For example, when I get to some of my more recent dividends here, we have ones from companies like Starbucks that just paid me $170. We have Microsoft with a $95 one. And then Texas Roadhouse, which is a newer holding, at least I built it up more recently, that just paid me $183. And these numbers will continue to climb over time. This dividend money ends up in my cash balance of my portfolio, along with my weekly deposits. And then I combine the two and I pick out which companies to buy. So that's the cycle of the portfolio. Every single week, I'm compounding my share count as quickly as possible and growing income as quickly as possible. Now, if you're interested in the companies that I'm buying and where I see value in the market, I'm going to give a teaser of an upcoming video where I go over every single one of my holdings and my personal valuation of them, where I see them being undervalued, fair value, and overvalued. So make sure you're subscribed with a bell icon if you want to see that one. Now, moving on, we have to get into what I consider to be maybe the worst interview ever given on CNBC. 
the worst ever. His name is Keith, and he's actually a very successful person. He's a general partner at the Founders Fund. They're one of the original investors and founders of lots of different companies like Open Door. He's played executive roles in companies like PayPal, Stripe, LinkedIn, and Square. And so he's had a good record, and this is the person that takes that spot. When we're talking about bad interviews, there's a lot to go through. There's a lot of really, really terrible interviews on CNBC. We can throw in a for instance here. We have the interview with Mark Minervini, where the audio conveniently broke up when he was asked what one of his companies that he owns actually does. In a name, a very powerful, very strong earnings. These stocks are- What do they do? Really I don't well. even know them. What do they do? Uh, excuse me? What does Upstart do? Uh, well, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. What kind of company is it? Yeah, I'm not, you're, you're breaking up. Oh, uh, well, I guess we, we've got an audio problem there, Mark. I'm sorry. This interview was bad. This was one of the worst looks for Mark Minervini. He could have come up with any better answer than the audio's breaking up. Maybe that he just doesn't care what the company does. He trades based off of technicals. Anything like that would have been a little bit better than what he did. But regardless, this interview stood as possibly one of the most funny, one of the most bad interviews on CNBC. But alas, we have a new challenger, and he's taken the title from Mark Minervini. Now, before we jump into the interview itself, I think we should look at some background context here and see how this all started. Because the interview is just a manifestation of, I think, a lot of built-up frustration of what transpired on Twitter. This is from a meme account, an anonymous meme account called High Yield Harry. He's the one that really spawned this whole issue and the subsequent interview. High Yield Harry posted a screenshot that's since been deleted. The screenshot was one of Keith saying the open door was currently undervalued. And High Yield Harry here was mocking him, saying the open door is only down 83% since this tweet. Now, this happens all the time. People get calls wrong all the time. Market conditions change. And Keith could have just safely ignored this tweet, like most people do but he decided to engage. He responded to High Yield Harry, this anonymous meme account, and said, yes, and so is shop. For example, moron. That was his first response. And this went on. John Hempton responded saying, Keith, that makes you look moronic. Seriously, if you pick the most down stock to compare yourself, it's rather rigging it. And Keith says, compare to any financial service stock. And this goes on and on. I don't want to highlight every tweet here, but Keith is arguing with meme accounts, anonymous meme accounts saying, wow, you're stupid and a troll too. He continually engages with every single memester mocking him online. And then ultimately on September 20th, he ended saying, open door is profitable. And that's a statement that we'll get to later. And this is where we get to DeBosa interviewing Keith on CNBC. It starts off okay, and then it quickly turns south. But I want to respond to something that you said on Twitter. You attributed Open Door's recent pain to, quote, quick dislocation of prices, which is obviously temporary. What data are you looking at that tells you that this weakness in housing is obviously temporary? Well, the Federal Reserve has been playing around with interest rates, right? raising interest rates you know, pretty dramatically, and that has dramatic effects on the pricing of real estate, I mean, residential real estate, what people can afford, mortgages, refinancing, home shopping. We saw this in 2008. Open Door is going to handle this perfectly. There'll be a blip for a quarter or so, but Open Door has been making money successfully for five years in a row on a housing purchase basis. Did you catch what he said at the end there? Open Door has been successfully making money. They're profitable on a housing purchase basis for five years in a row. Keith tries to paint the picture that Open Door is profitable. 
That's what he's repeating over and over again. And remember, that's exactly what he said on Twitter. Right now, open is profitable. So before we continue with the interview, I want to quickly jump in and observe that initial claim. Is open door profitable? Well, we type in open door here, and this software is available to any Patreon member. We can see that the stock is down 79% year to date. That's not a problem. Maybe the company is just underpriced. We look at the revenue. It's a little shaky, but generally growing over time. Then we look at the EBIT of the company. The EBITDA does not paint a picture of profitability. Every single year it's in the red, and in 2021 they were down $463 million in EBITDA. Well, let's go ahead and look at the free cash flow of the company. The only year that the free cash flow was positive was in 2020. In 2021, it was down $5.83 billion. We can look at the net income of the company. Every single year is negative, and 2021 was the worst year once again. We can look at the EPS of the company. Every single year, it's in the negative, minus $1.12 per share in 2021. So we have two different stories going on here. Qualtrim and the hard data here is telling us that the company is not profitable, but we have an executive saying that the company's been profitable for five years. And this is where things start to get a bit heated in this interview. But Open Door does lose money, Keith. It hasn't been profitable on a gap basis, no. right, for the last few years. Open Door, Open Door is profitable on a gap basis. If you look at last quarter, what we are you looking at? For the year, we're going to be gap profitable. Almost, I mean, it's hard to tell because quarter four hasn't occurred. But it's not uh, but profitable, if, Keith. We'll show you the numbers. Five, we'll show you the numbers right on the screen no, right now. Lost money on a net loss basis in 2021, 2020, also the first few quarters of this me, year. What are you looking me, at? No, show me. Show me quarter two. And first of all, gap also includes non-cash expenses, as you know. But gap your, is is net losses. No, it includes stock-based expenses, which are fake. Here we have this founder saying stock-based expenses are fake. That's right, people. When the company has to issue more and more shares diluting your equity stake in the company, well, that's a fake expense. Not real. It doesn't really exist. You shouldn't factor it in. That's what you're hearing here from Keith. I think it's mind-blowing that you have a founder here saying stock-based expenses are fake. What does that even mean? It's a real cost to the company. After all, you're having to give up equity in the company to pay for it. But this continues on. Now, secondly... For five years in a row, literally 20 quarters, on the home basis, on a per home basis, we have made money. So obviously, there's operating expense and there's scale in the business. We hire a lot of engineers. We run a lot of product innovation. And that's the crux of his argument. On a per home basis, they're making money. They're making money if you don't actually factor in any expenses whatsoever to run the business. Just based off of buying and selling homes, they're making a little money. But when you factor in anything else in the entire company, they're losing money. But in Keith's mind, all the other expenses regarding running the company are fake expenses. They don't really count and Open Door's profitable. Like any company, virtually every company that's gone public in the last five years mm-hmm. in tech has similar characteristics. But fundamentally, mm-hmm. all you have to do is look at an operating basis. Open Door has been profitable for 20 quarters in okay, a row. But- I have to clarify, that's a non-GAAP basis under generally accepted accounting principles, Keith. What he's saying here is absolutely correct, and Keith continues to argue with it. Oh, absolutely not. That's, like, stupid. Gross okay, margin we'll, we'll, we'll leave that for another time. Maybe an accountant can, can talk to us. Contribution margin. Do not know what gross margin and contribution margin are. Now he's quizzing the host, asking her. He's on CNBC asking a female host if she knows what gross margins and contribution margins are. What Keith actually did reminds me of a scene in Silicon Valley where they talk about mansplaining. There's something called mansplaining. Have you heard about this? We know what mansplaining is. Mansplaining. 
is when a man will condescendingly explain something to a woman that she already knows. This is what Keith is doing right now. He's on CNBC quizzing a host of a financial show on different financial definitions. Now, this interview continues on, and Dee's a professional here. She says that we'll bring in an accountant. We'll talk about it later. I want to talk about your company. Uh, And she takes it in a different direction. And she doesn't get baited in to arguing with Keith over these specific terms. But I think this interview... It actually is a teaching lesson. I think it's something we can all learn from. And the lesson we can get from this is to never trust executives or founders when they come on claiming things that are different than what the numbers plainly illustrate. On Twitter and on TV, we have the founders saying one thing, open is profitable. The company's making money. But a quick look at the actual numbers and we see something entirely different. We see losses in EBITDA, free cash flow, net income, and earnings per share. Anyone can say anything in an interview, but the numbers tell the full story. Now, moving on from the worst interview of the year, I want to move on to what I consider to be, right now, the best interview of the year, which is Jeremy Siegel going on to CNBC to talk about the Fed. We know what the Fed has been doing. They're raising interest rates aggressively. They're saying they're going to crush inflation. They're bumping it up 75 basis points after 75 basis points. And this is causing your stocks and my stocks to go down. The market is having a very difficult time having any upward momentum at all. We're seeing day after day, just like today, of drops in the market. And Jeremy doesn't like this at all. In fact, he thinks it's destroying the economy. You know, Scott, I find it very amusing. A year ago at that September meeting, when we had booming commodity prices, when housing prices rising at the fastest rate in post-war history, uh, when we had all commodities going up at rapid rates, uh, Fed uh, Chairman Powell and the Fed said, we don't see any inflation. We see no need to raise interest rates in 2022. Now, when all those very same commodities and asset prices are going down. He sees, uh, you know, stubborn inflation that requires the Fed to stay tight all the way through 2023. Makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. What Jeremy Siegel here is saying is mostly correct. Around this time period, where inflation was starting to really take off, the Fed really wasn't all that concerned. They're saying it's transitory. These are just temporary issues. They're going to be resolved. And the Fed wasn't spooking the market to the extent they are now. And now that inflation is actually, generally speaking, trending down over time, now the Fed is saying, let's get really aggressive and spook the markets. They weren't doing it a year or so ago, but they're doing it now. And Jeremy goes on to highlight how this doesn't really make sense. We do not have to get anywhere near that level to stop inflation because all the inflation is basically stopped. It's basically stopped. I mean, you had a headline just came across three minutes ago. Oil back to January levels. That's before Russia invaded Ukraine. And again, what Jeremy's saying here is mostly true. Oil's down to $77 right now, which is exactly where it was the beginning of this year, January of 2022, before the massive rally in oil. It went up all the way to 120 And that's where people are forecasting that it was going to go to 150 or $200 a barrel. But it didn't. It took a turn, 
And for the past five months, it started to trend downwards. So the Fed is getting more aggressive on inflation after one of the major drivers of inflation, which is oil prices, has been trending downwards for the past five months. And we have other examples we can highlight. Freight and shipping costs was one of the biggest expenses. Now that's going down with the price of oil. It's been trending down again for the past five months. And the Fed acting so aggressively after all these commodity prices are falling are what's really frustrating to Jeremy. You can see what's happening commodities. We're going to get the case shore uh, index next week. It's going to show no increase or a decrease for the first time in years. And that's a lagged indicator on the ground. Commodity, all the prices are going down. The only thing that's not going down is wages. And by the way, wages are in catch up mode. Don't don't argue they're pushing inflation. They're lagging inflation. I mean, the workers are trying to get what a little bit back uh, of, uh, of what the inflation happens to be. I think the Fed is just way too tight. They they're going to they're making exactly the same oh. mistake okay. on the other side that they made a year ago. Now, I love how fired up Jeremy Siegel is here. I've never seen an interview like this with him so frustrated with what's going on. But he's asked about stocks specifically. We know that our portfolios over the past month or so have just been crushed specifically from the Fed's actions. My portfolio, for example, is down $31,000 in the past 30 days. That's 8.61%. And it looks relatively the same for the rest of the market. The S&P 500, the QQQ, and the Dow Jones are all down around 10%. And Professor Siegel explains why this is likely not going to change with our portfolios until the Fed pivots. Well, you know, until he sees the light and says, you know what, I don't think we have to be so tight. that, you know, until until that happens, you can st- still have pressure on on stocks. I mean, and 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 that's gonna, you know, that's probably one of the factors that can see the light. I mean, when he sees how high real rates have gone, the dollar the highest in twenty or thirty years. By the way, next Tuesday we're gonna get the the monthly uh, stock market uh, money supply data, which is gonna show the greatest decline in five months that we've had in the post war period. I mean, if he looks at any of the monetary or financial indicators. He can't say, oh, we have to keep them on. I mean, at his press conference, he said, we have to get real rates in the positive territory. They're in positive territory for every maturity for the first time in so years. Think- We're already there. Um, I mean, I, so- I did... I thought that was the most uninformative. The Fed needs to see the light at the end of the tunnel before they reverse course. And they're ignoring a lot of current data. He also goes on to highlight how the Fed is not being asked any difficult questions by reporters. Uh, I mean, and, and no one was asking them the, you know, the hard question. How do we have 3.2 million new workers and GDP going down? What, 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 is, what does that mean? What does the record decline in the money supply mean? I mean, what is what does the collapse in commodity prices mean? What is the lag construction of of the of these housing indicators that are forty percent of the core inflation, which you know, are, are are going to are going to filter through inflation for the next twelve to fifteen months? Is that what he's looking at? Why is he looking at that? Um, that's not an accurate view of what in, housing inflation is. I mean, there were no hard questions. You know, there there were 50 reporters there. I don't know. They basically said, you know, repeat the statement you made at the beginning. There's so many things I ask him. What is he actually looking at? He's looking at three-month annualized 
core inflation that is a lag? Well, we all look at market. I mean, look at what does the stock market do? It looks at market-oriented data. And that's what Professor. the Fed should be looking at. He brings up a lot of good questions. These are all things that I think are appropriate questions for the Fed to answer. If I had the power, I would take out all the reporters that ask the Fed questions and just replace all of their time with just Jeremy Siegel. I would love to put him as the only one that can ask questions and have him ask questions for 20 minutes and have Jerome Powell stand there and answer these questions because I think he brings up some very good points here. I thought Professor Siegel is great in this interview and I like that he says openly that he's frustrated with the situation. You seem down. I am very upset. At- yes, I am. I am. I, I, I'm afraid it's like a pendulum. They were way too easy, as I've told you and many others through 2020, 2021, and now, oh my God, you know, we're going to be real tough guys until we crush the economy. I mean, that that is just to me, absolutely, um, poor monetary policy would be an understatement. And there's the headline of the interview, calling this monetary policy poor is an understatement. So that's Professor Siegel's thoughts on the Fed. He thinks the Fed owes the American people an apology for their poor monetary policy over the past two years. Now, where do I stand on this? My views on inflation are that, first of all, I don't make many investment decisions based on where inflation will be or where the interest rates will be. I look at the data and I make predictions on it. For instance, my prediction was that inflation was going to hit its peak in March of 2022. So the core CPI hit 6.5%. I came out with a video that very month saying that inflation has peaked. I'm no economist. So why do I come to this conclusion? Simply because prices of things are either leveling out or starting to go down. There's no big formula for it. That's the only thing that I'm looking at. So my thought was maybe inflation will go down quicker than expected. The Fed will do a pivot and the stock market will go up. But we have a compare and contrast here. We have what Jeremy Siegel saying and the predictions that inflation will go down. The Fed is going to do a hard pivot. And we have what people like Greg Jensen are saying, that inflation is going to remain more stubborn than expected for longer than expected. Now, I want to go on to explain why I'm not too concerned with what direction inflation goes or what direction the federal funds rate goes or even what direction the economy goes. It's all about portfolio construction. I tried to illustrate this concept using a Venn diagram, and I know this is a messy concept, but if you're familiar with the Venn diagram, I think it explains my portfolio construction really well. We have on the left side here, the left part of the Venn diagram is the best type of environment for companies to flourish. We have the 2% inflation, so inflation is no longer a problem. We have low federal funds rates, so getting capital is cheap. Getting loans is cheap for companies. And we have a booming economy. GDP is growing quarter after quarter. Some type of companies do really well in that environment. We have the ARC type of companies, the ones that are unprofitable, that really rely on that access to cheap capital, either through loans or through issuing more equity. We have Tiger Global. We have speculative assets. We saw the big run-up in speculation over the past two years. Things like SPACs that really didn't have a lot of financial foundation to them, but they're being promoted online. These are the type of investments that do really well during these specific market environments. Then we have on the other end of the spectrum here, recessions with 6% inflation and high federal funds rate. That looks more like the environment we're going into. Now, all of the type of stuff that's doing really well in the other environment 
does not do well during recessions or during times of high inflation. All of the type of stuff like ARK Invest, Tiger Global, speculative assets, SPACs, and so forth are getting crushed right now in this environment. The only things that really do well during recessions or times of very high inflation, very high federal funds rate, is betting against the market, shorting the market, hedging, or betting against it. I'm not doing either of those extremes. I'm not investing in companies that only do well during the perfect market environment, And I'm not investing in things that bet against the market because I think that relies too heavily on market timing. My portfolio fits in both of these categories where I think my performance will do really well in either given scenario. Whether or not we have a very accommodative Fed with a booming economy or whether or not we get the recession with high inflation and high federal funds rate. Mine is in the middle where every company I'm investing in, I think will financially flourish in either situation. And that's why I don't concern myself so much what direction the economy or the federal funds rate are going. Now, on the other hand, if you are invested in more speculative assets, then you are gonna be very concerned about what direction the Fed is going. This is the reason that Kathy Wood is constantly on Twitter and on TV saying that the Fed needs to lower interest rates because that's the environment in which her fund flourishes. At the same time, if you have bets against the market, then you're actively hoping that the market goes down. That's why many people that have bearish positions on the market try to go on to CNBC and induce fear with the rest of investors. In my scenario, I have the luxury of not having a specific market environment that needs to cater to my portfolio. I will survive in either situation. If the market continues to go down, of course my gains will go down a little bit, but my companies will be just fine. They have incredibly strong balance sheets. None of them are over leveraged. Every single one of them, I believe, possesses the fundamentals, the free cash flow to continue to be able to grow even during a recession. So I'm not concerned about the worst market environment, and I'm not concerned about stocks going up. I'm not conflicted in either situation. And I'll be using this sell-off, which I do consider to be temporary in the long run, as an opportunity to buy more companies that I consider to be these world-class compounders. And like I said, in my next episode, we'll be going over the valuation of every single one of my companies one by one. So I think that'll be a fun one. If you're interested in my thoughts on what my companies are really worth, I'll be doing that in the next episode. So having said that, I'll see you next time.